All right, so let's get controversial. You ready? Let's talk about Joe Rogan. All right, here we go. I think Kayla just proved my point. Okay, here we go. So if you, don't, if you haven't been on Twitter or Reddit or, I don't know, CNN, I'm guessing, recently, I'm sure Fox News is all over this, right? I don't really watch any of those things. But um, uh, you've heard about this like recent, like just in the last week or two, controversy with Joe Rogan. So let me give you, if you haven't heard it, let me give you the quick recap. Uh, basically, Joe Rogan got COVID a while ago, last year maybe, and uh, he was prescribed, okay, do you say it, ivermectin by his doctor. And that's the medicine that's also used to deworm horses, right? But at the same time, it's used, there's like a human version, I guess, right? And that's what he took, was the human version. And then CNN, because a bunch of crazy people were going out there and buying the horse version of this thing and getting sick and stuff. So CNN ran a headline that was like, Joe Rogan took the horse medicine. And Joe Rogan got real peeved about that. And so because of that, um, uh, he's been talking a lot lately and having guests on his podcast about talking about COVID and COVID protocols and all this stuff. Now, let me give a quick caveat, like especially with the medicine. I don't know if it works. I don't know if it doesn't work. I'm not a doctor. I don't care. <laughs> I got COVID. Nobody gave me any horse medicine. I just sat home, you know. All right. So don't, don't go emailing me. Hey, you said ivermectin. I don't even know what it is. I know people take it and horses take it. That's all I know about it <laughs> from what I saw. Anyway, so after the whole thing, he got real mad about the coverage and started having all these guests on. And um, one of his kind of, like one of the reasons his podcast is maybe the most popular podcast in the world is because, and the Gospel Coalition, before he was all talking about COVID constantly, wrote an article about him where they said, um, they were talking about how he is one of the few places that has people that he vehemently disagrees with on his show and like tries to have a conversation with them. Now, is he great at it or what? That's all up for debate, right? But at least he tries to do this, right? It's one of the only places you can see a podcast that had Elizabeth Warren and Ben Shapiro like back to back on the same podcast. That's not really something we do anymore. People tend to just kind of have people from one side of the spectrum. Anyway, so one of the guests he had on recently... I feel like it was last week or two weeks ago or something, was the Canadian um, professor, Jordan Peterson, right? The somewhat controversial dude. Anyway, and I guess they talked, I didn't watch even a second of it, of the COVID part. I, there was one part where Jordan Peterson talked about the Bible. I watched that three-minute clip. But the part about COVID, I don't know what they talked about. I didn't really watch it. Um, and whatever they said, they made a lot of people mad. Now, uh, uh, here's the debate. Right, some people are mad because they say Joe Rogan's podcast is spreading COVID misinformation. That's the phrase, COVID misinformation. So people like Neil Young, who had polio when he was a kid, right, and got the polio vaccine, is like furious about this podcast and told Spotify, hey, I want you to take, because Spotify owns the Joe Rogan podcast, I want you to take off my music, right? Don't have my music. And then um, Joni Mitchell, who also kind of grew up in that same era. I don't know if she had polio like Neil Young, but... You know, I mean, if you remember polio and then the polio vaccine, you feel very strongly about vaccines, right? And so those two are like that. And so cancel, hashtag cancel, I always say hash browns, cancel Spotify, uh, started trending this week and people started. Um, and uh, well, anyway, so that's one side. People on the other side don't seem to agree. Their argument goes like this. Uh, Joe Rogan, right, he's having people on his podcast from all over the political spectrum and he's trying to have real conversations with them. And so we don't want to censor his speech or whatever. Now, anyway, 
the way this is working is everybody now in the world, or in the United States anyway, is you have to take sides. It's black or white. Are you on Joe Rogan's side? Is he good or bad? You know what I mean? And this is a lot of the coverage has kind of looked like that. Now, I'm just talking about Joe Rogan, even though I don't super care about Joe Rogan, to get to this. I want to talk about Trevor Noah. You guys know Trevor Noah? So I had to give you the background for something that Trevor Noah did. That's the point of this illustration. So Trevor Noah is the host of The Daily Show uh, on Comedy Central, right? He replaced Jon Stewart. Um, he's from uh, South Africa. Um, and he has a book I have in my Audible that I haven't listened to yet that it's on my to-do list called Born a Crime. Right, he grew up in apartheid South Africa. Anyway, he's, um, he's, he'll say, right, he's kind of more on the liberal side of the political spectrum. Um, now, Trevor Noah went on his show and talked about the whole Joe Rogan controversy, and his view was much more nuanced. And he kind of took both sides and neither side. Um, if you want to watch the clip, go ahead and find it. It's pretty, there's some pretty vulgar parts, I think. So just, you know, there's your pastor's caveat, you know. But I watched the whole thing. And um, at the end of the clip, like in some aspects, he was... He said, in defense of Joe Rogan, and then he goes, and I can't believe I'm saying in defense of Joe Rogan, and then he went on to say something. And then in other parts of the clip, he criticized Joe Rogan like pretty harshly, and he went into some of the stuff I guess they actually talked about. Anyway, this is the point. At the end of the clip, Trevor Noah's just kind of done with what he had planned to talk about, and he says this. He goes, now it's going to be a headline, Trevor Noah defends Joe Rogan, or... Uh, he's like, that's all they're going to cut out. Or the headline's going to be, Trevor Noah slams Joe Rogan, you know, he goes, welcome to the internet, right? People are not going to listen to the nuance of whatever it was he was talking about with Joe Rogan. They're just going to say he's on this side or he's on this side. It has to be simple. And the Daily Beast, right, a news magazine website, actually posted an article, Trevor Noah defends Joe Rogan, right? Literally, the end of the clip is making fun of anybody that would post that article, and he did. Um, and so the whole point in talking about the controversy is this, right, is not who's right or wrong, because I don't really know enough about it to care or have an opinion. Um, uh, in America, we do this thing where we take really more complex and nuanced issues, and we try to dumb everything down so it fits in one tweet. You know, how many characters is Twitter? I don't have Twitter. 100-something? 200-something? Yeah, so, you know, a couple of sentences, right? Everything has to fit there. It has to be, these complex issues have to be black or white, right? A lot of times it ends up being, has to be uh, conservative or liberal, or it has to be this or that. We try to kind of dumb everything uh, down, and when we do that, we take these things that have meaning and we strip them of their meaning. And so um, the other thing that bugs me is we have to, everybody has to have an opinion on something that they put absolutely no effort into learning about. What do you think about this thing? And I need to know right now, and it's only one of two options, and that's it. And that's going to decide if I like you or I don't like you. You know what I mean? And this is what we do. And so this attitude is, I mean, this is the culture we've become. Now, that idea of how we treat complex ideas is something that is super hurtful when we do it, not just in the political world, talking about Joe Rogan and cancel Spotify, but when we do it in theological world too. And to be honest, I think a lot of that thinking comes from the way American Christians have been doing this for like a while. Like, we basically invented this way of thinking 150 years ago. I'll give you some examples, right? Take some complex, take a complex issue like alcohol. Is alcohol, is drinking a sin? Uh, is beer a sin? No, but light beer probably is. Just kidding. That's what my old pastor used to say. I always thought that was funny, right? Uh, 
No, I mean, it's a complex issue. Is it a sin? I don't know, sometimes, and sometimes it's not, right? And so, that, but we had folks like the prohibition, you know, moms, you know, that basically pushed through prohibition in our country because it was black and white. If you take a sip of alcohol, you're bad. Uh, uh, let's see, what's another one? Playing cards, right? Like gambling and just, you know, that became another one of these things. It's not a, you know, is, is playing cards sinful? I don't know, sometimes maybe, <laughs> right? It can become an idol. You can gamble, you can, uh, you know, but other times it's just like, hey, I want to sit around and play uh, Texas Hold'em and throw some M&Ms in the pot with my friends. That's not sinful, you know what I mean? And um, man, I've never actually played Texas Hold'em. If anybody wants to come over and gamble with me, uh, <laughs> right? Um, or we do it with not just sinful things, right? Well, like, oh, I also wrote down another example, right? Is mu- music. Remember, like, burning Led Zeppelin albums in the 70s? That's sinful, is burning the album. Man, that's some great vinyl right there. Uh, but we do it with more complex things. And the big one is salvation, right? We've taken this grand idea and we've boiled it down to, did you walk down the aisle and pray the prayer? You know, and the biblical picture of salvation is like this grand, wonderful, uh, you know, idea. And we've, we've taken this massive theological idea that's literally going to take eternity to start to wrap our minds around it. And we've, we've boiled it down to one time, one decision, and that's kind of it. You know what I mean? Um, today, Jesus is going to teach his disciples some more about one of these ideas. And it's one of the ideas that we have completely butchered as Americans by doing this complex idea to a really simple thing. He's going to talk about repentance. So as he talks about repentance here, um, and we work through this, uh, I want to talk about that. What's the big idea of repentance versus what's the like really narrow lane that we've put repentance in. So if you remember the context before we get into the text of chapter 12, um, uh, a lot of stuff is going on. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem and uh, heading to the cross. And on the way, he's teaching his disciples a whole bunch, and he's getting them ready for when he takes off. And so um, uh, at the beginning of 12, he talks about how the kingdom impacts their money and their stuff. We did that one a while ago. Thinking about, man, as I talk about money and and stuff, people are going to get very anxious. So the next section, he talked about anxiety and the sovereignty of God. The third section of chapter 12 was kind of the longest. It dealt with uh, understanding the times in which we live, right? The end times. We talked about Revelation. That was kind of the last sermon. And here's the end of that chapter as we flow into our part here. He says, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid every last penny. And what we said was, this is not sound advice about how to pay down your credit card debt. What he's talking about here is you owe God a debt. And before the end times, you need to settle up that debt. Right? You need to, like, that needs to be handled. We talked about the gospel, right? Jesus handles that debt for you, and we went through all that. Um, so this is one of those places where the chapter marker can be very hurtful because Jesus is just flowing right into the next kind of a thing, right? He had just said, you have this great debt that you owe the Father, and now you need to settle it up. And then this happens. So while he's teaching, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. So while he's talking about this, some people tell him this story about Pilate. So we know about Pilate, right, if you've read the Gospels at all, from he's the one who had, he's the governor of Uh, the province of Judea, who had uh, Jesus crucified. So he was the fifth, I'll tell you a little bit about him. He was the fifth governor 
of the province. He was in power from 26 AD to 37, right? So just about 10 or 11 years. Um, and we know a lot about the life of Pilate from the writings of this Jewish historian named Josephus. And we know that Pilate was a proud and an arrogant man. Um, he only got the job by being the protege, like being a friend of a dude who was in charge of the Praetorian Guard, which was like the Caesar's secret service, except that a lot of times they would just kill Caesar and then say to some other guy, hey, you're the new Caesar. You know, like they were a very powerful version of the secret service. And so his entire time as governor was marked with like conflict with the Jewish people. And uh, Josephus gives a handful of examples, right? Like when he first became the governor, he marched into Jerusalem with, um, they cut like the Roman standard, which was in a statue and some like, you know, Roman symbols. And he tried to take that stuff uh, up into the city of Jerusalem, where every other governor before him had decided, no, no, that's not worth it, right? These guys are going to get pretty upset about this. Um, and the leaders of the Jewish people begged him not to do it, so he sent a whole bunch of soldiers to, like, kill everybody in the crowd. And um, he, uh, the, the soldiers told this crowd, if you guys don't move and let us carry these statues, basically up to the Temple Mount, these statues of Caesar, um, we're going to kill every one of you. And everybody in the crowd got down on their knees and pulled their shirts like this and, like, held out their necks. And they realized, we can't kill the entire city of Jerusalem, so the soldiers backed down, right? Um, another time, Pilate took a bunch of money from the Temple Fund, and used it for building projects, which he wasn't really supposed to do. Um, the Jewish people got very upset because that was money dedicated to the Lord. Um, there's also a handful of times where he got very violent with the Jewish people. Like, actually, they, they took it further and massacred a bunch of Samaritans at one point. So anyway, this is Pilate, right? So the incident here that these folks are talking about is not really recorded anywhere else except in the Gospels, um, but that's not really surprising for a couple of reasons, right? First, um, they didn't record history with the same amount of detail that we do now. I love that comedian, uh, Norm MacDonald, before he died. Yeah, uh, one of my favorites. He had a joke about, it used to be you would say, hey, do you want to see the picture of my great-grandfather? You know, and it was always standing like this. You know, and he goes, uh, our, great, our grandkids are going to be like, hey, do you want to see 600,000 pictures of my great-grandma? You know, here's what she ate for breakfast on a Wednesday. Right? Everything is recorded now. That's just not how they did it, right? Um, like the president, you know, like a president. Now, every phone call he makes is recorded, you know, from the Oval Office. Everything he does. He walked into this, you know, they just didn't do history like that back then. And second is um, nothing in this incident that's reported uh, goes against what we know of Pilate's character. This makes perfect sense. And then the third thing is, think of a guy like Stalin, right? Not a very nice guy, if you know, you know, what's that? That's another Norm joke. The more I learn about this Hitler character, the more I don't like him, you know? Like a guy like Stalin or Hitler, like they had so many atrocities, there's no way they all got written down. That's kind of Pilate, you know, in the Roman world. That's just how it works. So we don't see this in other places, but it's here in the Bible. And what happened was Pilate, it says he mingled the blood of these guys with the sacrifices. So, it, I mean, it's pretty obvious when you kind of look into this, right? Is um, Sacrificing an animal is, we don't do this now, but you can imagine cutting the throat of a goat or something is pretty bloody mess, right? And so mingling the blood means somehow these Jewish folks, these Galileans, who were like the redneck hicks, you know, uh, they were at the temple doing something or they were somewhere doing a sacrifice. And while they were in the middle of it, a bunch of soldiers killed them. And their blood got mixed in with the blood of whatever it was that they were sacrificing, which to a Jewish person was in the first century was absolutely like sacrilegious. This is one of the worst things that you could ever do. So verse 2, and so... 
Jesus answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Um, So basically, everybody back then thought, if something bad happens to you, it's because God's punishing you. And if something good happens, it's because God is blessing you. Your life circumstances are directly affected by your sin. Um, And we'll see this in a couple of weeks when we talk about the guy who had a dropsy, which is like swelling. And everybody thought, well, if you eat too much, you get dropsy, and it's your own fault. You're a glutton. You know, like, I mean, this is just how these people thought. And so um, every culture has major assumptions that they just believe without even thinking about why they believe it. So in our culture, it's individualism. My individualism is the most important thing in the entire world, right? That my, my freedom and all that stuff. Um, and so uh, this was theirs, right? Is that people sin, God was punishing sin. And so now Jesus is questioning it. He says, do you think that that's what happened? Do you think that God was punishing these people? Verse 3, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, Uh, you will all likewise perish. Jesus' answer is very simple. No, one word. That's not how the world works. And we'll get into this more in a second when we talk about Job. But he says, you need to repent. Your assumption is that you're the good guy, and those Galileans were the bad guys, and that's why they got killed, because God was punishing them for some sort of sin. But no, you, you need to repent. Otherwise, you're going to perish. Now, what does Jesus mean by perish? Uh, If you read this in commentaries and stuff, People really get into this word. What does he mean exactly by this? Um, the word, literally, I wrote this down. To means to destroy, lose, despair, uh, disappear. Sorry, uh, be destroyed or ruined. So that's a very wide range of meaning. We translate it um, perish is pretty good. Some people teach that this is annihilationism, where there's no hell and judgment in the afterlife. It's just you're completely destroyed. I think that's reading too much into it. I think what's happening here is Jesus is saying unless you Pilate got those guys, and unless you repent, you're going to get it too, right? I think that's about as deep as this is. All right, so verse 4, he gives another example. Or the 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than those others who lived in Jerusalem? So um, the last example was a bunch of Galileans, right? A bunch of redneck hicks, um, from, well, it was the north, but we would say, you know, from Alabama or whatever, right? And so um, Jesus brings up another example. It'd be like if somebody from San Francisco told him, like, Alabama's a good one, told him a story about a disaster in Alabama. And so Jesus turns around and says, yeah, but let me tell you about the 89 earthquake. All of a sudden, everybody would get real quiet, (laughs) right? Oh, yeah, that happened here, right? So the disaster is there was this pool of, I don't know how to say this, Siloam? Am I saying that? Siloam? I should have, like, read somebody. I should have listened to this before I did this in front of a bunch of people. Um, Anyway, there was a pool in Jerusalem, and we see this in other parts of the gospel. So, I mean, you can just put two and two together. At some point, there was a tower next to that pool. We have no idea when or how or anything. Again, not everything was written down back then, but apparently this tower fell on a bunch of people. It's like an ancient version of, you know, we have those crane disasters. Have you ever seen the footage of that? That is terrifying just being downtown and seeing one of those giant cranes just taking buildings down and landing on cars. And, you know, it was kind of like that, right? Except it wasn't probably as big. But um, Jesus' answer, well, do you think those guys were worse? The point is the same, right? You think that you're okay because these people had this disaster and you haven't had one. You think that you are a better person than them. Um, The point that Jesus is making, he's not saying those guys didn't deserve to have the tower fall on them. Jesus' point is, we all deserve the tower, right? This is what he's saying. Everybody deserves to have the tower fall on them. Again, 
exactly like he said before. But unless, you know, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Whenever you see something repeated word for word in the Bible, it's very important. I don't do this almost, I hardly ever do this, but they, they, they teach this in sermon classes, right? Is you say something forceful, and then you say something forceful. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, right, like, you say the same thing real, I, I don't know, that's just not my personality, and I, you know, my teaching style is very much just, this is how I am, right? So I don't do a lot of that stuff, but the same thing is true in the Bible, right? When something is repeated like that, it, it's super important. This is obviously the key to this passage, is unless you repent, you are going to face the same uh, fate. And then verse 6, so he told him this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. Now, if I told you a, a little story, and the main character of the story was a bald eagle, right, a little parable, immediately, what do you think this story is about? America, right? Uh, yeah, so the fig tree is the bald eagle of the people of Israel, okay? Does that make sense? Anybody hearing this automatically would have thought, okay, he's talking about the Old Testament people of Israel. So Jesus says there was this fig tree, but it didn't have any fruit. Uh-oh, okay, now Jesus is getting into some dangerous territory. Um, <laughs> right, why did God pick the people of Israel to be his, all the people of the world, right? There's different Canaanite people, there was the Egyptians, there were people uh, further south in Africa, you know, there's tribes all over, the people of Israel, right? Abraham, he pulled him out of nowhere and said, you're going to be, um, God tells them, right? You can read this whole thing here, but basically he says, it's not because you're better, or it's not because you had more people, or, you know, he said, basically, it's because of my grace, and so the reason that God picked them was out of grace, and then the mission that he gave those people was to be a light to the world, so that he, he set them apart so that the people of Israel in the Old Testament could be different from the nations around them. That's why all these purity laws and dietary laws, <clears throat> it was to keep the people, <clears throat> sorry, to keep the people separate and different from the rest of the world so that the rest of the world could look at them and know, oh, that's what God is like. Right? I can see God in the lives of these people. But the thing was, as you read the Old Testament, they never lived up to this calling. The, the prophets, everybody is constantly telling them. You know, in certain times, I guess in Solomon's time for a little bit they did, in David's time. But overall, the picture is they weren't a light. They started thinking, I'm picked because I'm better. Even though God specifically tells them, I didn't pick you because you were better, right? I picked you for something else. So now Jesus is picking up this prophetic theme, and he's telling them, there's no fruit. The whole purpose of you guys being this special people, right, was to be a light to the Gentiles. And so uh, he said to the vine dresser, this is the parable continuing, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? So Jesus is saying, the time is running out, guys. Like, I've been, this ministry, and I think three years is no coincidence, right? Jesus' ministry at this point has been about three years. And so they have continued to break the covenant, continued to reject him, continued to fight against him. And Jesus is saying, the time is coming to cut the tree down. Um, and then the last verses, and he said, he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And if uh, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. So basically, this guy talks him into the owner, like, hey, let's have a second chance. Let's give this tree one more year, right? Let's give him just a little bit longer. Time is not yet out. Jesus, though, you see the point of the parable. He is pleading with 
the people of Israel specifically to turn back to him, turn back to God, accept his kingdom, and come into the fold. Now, if not, what's going to happen is the tree is going to get cut down. This judgment is going to come. And they were living under the assumption that I'm just in because I'm born Jewish, and that's it, right? I'm part of the covenant, and I'm in. Um, They assumed that repentance was for other people, right? That's for the bad people who the tower fell on and who got killed by Pilate. And that's not for me. And Jesus is telling them, no, repentance is for you. So that's the whole passage. Now, the key to this short passage is that idea of repentance. It's repeated. Now, if I asked you to define repentance, like I give everybody a piece of paper, and I said, write down a definition of repentance, and hand it up to me, and I started reading them out loud, I bet most of them would go something like this. When I sin, I feel sorry for the sin, and I tell the Lord what I did and that I'm sorry. Right? That's kind of what we think repentance is, when we think of repentance. Almost like a grocery list. i got to check off all the sins that I did wrong. But remember, at the beginning, that whole thing with Joe Rogan's podcast, right? <laughs> then Trevor Noah. We take this grand, complicated idea, and we boil it down to what's like this small, uh, meaningless idea. Confession, right, of sin is a part of repentance, but it's not all of repentance. Repentance has a wider meaning, a wider meaning than just confessing your sins. So um, it's like if you asked me, what what does it mean to be a pastor? And I said to you, oh, I edit the podcast. You'd be like, okay, but isn't there more to it? Right? When we say repentance is confession of sin, it's like, well, isn't there more to it than that? There is. And so, to dig into this a little bit deeper, we wanna, I want to do something different. Um, man, we got through that passage really quick. Yeah, that's because I tricked you. Uh, we're going to watch the Bible Project video. It's like a 10-minute video, so get ready for this, right? On the book of Job. Uh, and then we're going to end talking about this just for a sec. Cool. Those Bible project guys are great, huh? That's one of my favorite, like, uses of technology is the, and the internet and the YouTubes and whatnot is those Bible project guys. All right, so tie this back into our passage then. Look at the book of Job. Suffering happens. The narrow view that these guys all had was you did something wrong, so you need to repent, and then good things will happen to you. God's answer. None of you guys have any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Um, and then Job says, yeah, you're right, I repent. So do you see what repentance looks like in the book of Job? Why we went into this whole thing. We talked about uh, why, we, why I made you guys watch that whole video, right? It's not confession of sin. When Job is repenting, he's doing something else. He's doing a complete 180 with his entire life, right? Not just the sinful things, but his whole worldview. And the word repentance, that's what it actually means. Like the, like the actual literal, I think, Greek word means just to turn around. Right? It means to face this way and then repent. Right? And now you're facing this way. And we in the Western church have taken that to mean confession. You're looking at sin, and then you turn around and you look at God. And we've narrowed it. And that's part of it. That is. It's, that's not wrong. It's just not all of it. It's incomplete right? Repentance is about your whole life. It's about everything. It's surrendering every part of yourself under the authority of Jesus. And that's what Job did, right? He says to God, while I'm, this is the way I view the world. 
Everything about the world, this is how I think it works. Then God comes and says, you don't understand any of this. I need you to not completely understand, but to just look at this way and trust me. And so that's what Job does. And so the life of repentance is about... um, Oh, wait, I skipped something. I want to jump back before we get into that. This idea of repentance... Um, you guys know Martin Luther, right? The story of Martin Luther and the Reformation, um, who said to the Pope, hey, uh, you all right there, buddy? <laughs> said to the Pope, uh, you guys is doing this wrong. Let me show you 95 ways, right? That was called the 95 Thesis. The first two, these are the first two. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And then the second point, the word cannot be understood referring to the sacrament of penance, that is confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. So this was Martin Luther's first big beef, was there's a grand idea of repentance, and we've shrunk it down to sit in a booth and tell somebody what you did wrong. And then it's automatic, boom, you're in. Meanwhile, the rest of your life can be completely unrepentant. You don't have to give the rest of your life to the Lord. You only have to give the confession part to the Lord. And so the life of repentance then is about constantly evaluating and praying, Lord, what part of myself am I not turning around? Right? Sometimes we're like, turn this way, and we're still kind of looking, <laughs> you know. Parts of us are still back there somewhere when they should be completely turned around right? Repentance says this, I deserve the tower to fall on me. I deserve the judgment, but you took that in my place. And because of that, even when I don't completely understand everything, I'm going to turn and I'm going to face my life towards you, right? I am yours. And so the application then of this passage is let's be the kind of people that give our whole lives to Jesus, be the kind of people who live constant lives of repentance. Um, The guy, one of the guys that lived with us for a while, um, and we were discipling Isaac. You guys have met Isaac. Um, he has a big tattoo on his arm. It says, all of life is repentance. Right? I love that. And he got it right here in North Beach. I love that tattoo, right? Because that's what we want to do. All of life is repentance. Our money, sexuality, pride, identity, right? The way you parent, the way you're married, the way you're single, the way you view entertainment, take in stuff, the way you talk to your neighbors, the way you think about your job and your vocation, um, and how it benefits the world, where you live, how you rest, how you spend free time, how you decide what's right or wrong, how you view the world and understand the things that are happening in the world, all of that stuff, we have a built-in wrong system, right? Sin is built in to us that the world works this way. And Jesus says, you need to repent of all of that. And you need to look at me like Job did. And so, uh, We want to live the life of repentance, and the way we do that is by constantly evaluating ourselves and then community. We constantly ask each other. We have to be the kind of people that are okay saying to each other, hey, I feel like this part of your life is facing that way and not this way. And we have to be willing to be humble and to, when somebody says that to us, to go, okay, let me think, let me pray, you know, let's talk about this. Let's, Let's hash this out because even when I'm wrong, I want my whole life to be facing, I want my whole life to be facing Jesus. The reason being because Jesus is the one who's worthy to have our whole lives, right? Nothing else is, but he is. And we see that when we look at the cross, right? When we see how much we need Jesus, repentance is possible. 